Welcome, folks, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibeto, and this week, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall join me during Climate Week to discuss the different forms of shareholder engagement. And then we talk about the crumbling of Thomas Cook, a British travel group that is in the process of liquidation. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. All right, so I'm recording from the heart of New York Climate Week. And for our first story, we're going to use this occasion to talk about divestment and shareholder votes and shareholder engagement because last week, Bill Gates, the billionaire philanthropist for all you podcast listening Luddites out there, was interviewed by the Financial Times about how ineffective divestment is. He said, quote, divestment to date probably has reduced about zero tons of emissions. It's not like you've capital starved, the people making steel and gasoline. I don't know the mechanism of action where divestment keeps emissions from going up every year. Instead, what he proposes is investing in innovative technology, which he just so happens to do in mass. So let's go through the quick divestment stats. To date, $11 trillion has been committed to divest from fossil fuels, according to 350.org. But unfortunately, to date, emissions have also steadily increased. Full disclosure, I have argued in favor of divestment before. A, I thought any discussion around limiting emissions were good discussions. And B, I thought it might create a social pressure to enable disruptive technologies to be developed in lieu of more fossil fuel investment. And since it's climate week, I wanted Megan and Rick to join me to discuss their thoughts around divestment, but also their thoughts around other shareholder efforts to limit or change the operations of either pollutive companies or to support clean technologies. So Megan, start us off by discussing what you thought about Billy Gates' interview with FT. I think in some ways he misses the point a little bit, which is that there are a lot of different reasons for investors to make various decisions about what they do or don't invest in and why they might do that and what other kinds of actions they might take as investors in the things that they do invest in. And a lot of the investors that we work with, I I think, have a similar objective in mind to what you were saying, Mike, in favor of divestment is that it sends a very clear message to the market and to their constituents. There may also be financial considerations if they're worried about stranded assets. The goal is not necessarily for that action of divestment to lower emissions directly. It's part of a broader conversation. Now, if you're looking to change the world, figure out how to actually bring emissions down, develop new technology, et cetera, then this this invest in clean stuff, disruptive technology also makes sense. In fact, you you see a lot of folks who are divesting from fossil fuels and then doing exactly what Bill Gates proposes and turning around and putting that money into clean tech, along with doing other sorts of things like engaging with companies about their operational efficiency or their choice of energy sources or whatever else it might be. That You can't divest everything. You can't invest in everything. And climate change is relevant to a large segment of the economy, the whole economy. Some portion, if not the entire portion, of your investment portfolio. So it's really not a simple kind of either or 
thing for any investor. Yeah, for real. I, I think actually divestment is in this subspecies of investor engagement tools that are used to try to get companies to deal with the climate disaster that is affecting the entire economy right now. And I think this Billy G interview is a great jumping off point to discuss the wider species of investor actions instead of just this subspecies. And that includes divestment, obviously, but it also includes engagement and shareholder votes. So, Rick, you've covered these topics for years. Uh, so I was wondering if you could take our listeners through this investor action species group, uh, if you will, and maybe discuss what usually gets the most outside attention. Sure. So, so engagement, the idea of, of a shareholder engaging a company is, is a really broad concept. And it, and it starts with simple engagement, um, simple, simple discussion, um, what's often called constructive dialogue. Um, get on the phone, get in a meeting, talk about concerns, ask questions. Um, it, some of it can be via the conference calls that companies periodically hold with investors. Um, some of it can be more um, individualized meetings with specific investors, particularly if they hold a sizable position. But those kind of ongoing dialogue is really probably the most um, and most effective place for investors to let their concerns be known, to ask questions, to try to better understand the decisions that, that management has made at a company, and to try and help steer those in a different direction going forward. Um, the things that we hear more about the things that sound more dramatic and and because they sound more dramatic, you know that maybe they sound more effective are really just a a much smaller part of the toolkit, and they're most often called on when when the dialogue doesn't work when the when the constructive piece uh, breaks down um so the the first of these of course is a shareholder proposal and um often the most successful shareholder proposal is one that gets withdrawn right abs- absolutely absolutely some of the most effective never come to a vote. Um, we see this over and over again. The ones that finally do come to a vote represent a, a tiny fraction of what's um, really initially proposed or, or considered. Um, it, it's very much like the tip of the iceberg. Um, and in, in anyone who looks at shareholder proposals and voting results on shareholder proposals and says, ah, this is the, the full scope of engagement and this is how we should think about how investors uh, are engaging based on their voting practices. That's that's you know that's a potentially titanic mistake, if you will. Yeah, let's let's address that problem directly because I think for most people, votes can seem like a big deal. They happen out in the public, and so people can be named and shamed when they vote against their purported values. Like when a politician that makes a big fuss against the pharmaceutical industry, but then votes against a bill calling for better pricing for medicines. And same thing if a large asset manager votes against a climate disclosure policy after supporting environmental disclosures publicly. But what you're saying, Rick, is to focus on these shareholder votes as the bellwether of action is misguided. Yeah, well, well first of all, the, the criticisms around that do tend to be binary. But the reality is not. Um, the reality is much more complex than that, and I think you have to look at every situation differently. There are uh, shareholder proposals that um, may may appear to be well aligned with um, positive change in climate, uh, but they aren't necessarily, or they they have less potential to be effective than some other engagement that's already gone on separately that you don't see that doesn't come out in the vote. I mean, it, it's it's just far more complex uh, these kinds of relationships than just simply looking at 
yes/no votes and whether they were aligned with management and so on would would have you believe. Some shareholder proposals can be extremely prescriptive, and so they might have the right general idea in mind, but not actually be practical or practicable for the company or even necessarily make sense precisely in the company's context. And so then you might have an investor engaging with a company about what does make sense to do to further the same goal, but voting against that proposal because they don't think that specific prescribed course of action makes sense. Exactly. They may be they may be focused on a particular percentage figure, for example. It may also be that it's a proposal. There, there are a number of proposals that we see quite often that ask companies to write a report on a particular practice. And, um, you, you know, those I have very mixed feelings about those because on the one hand, um, they're intended to cause the board to think about and consider a an area of behavior um, that may be important. But at the same time, it's a very different sort of approach than saying to the company, change your behavior. Um, and that you're going to see that more often in the in the active dialogue than you will in a in a shareholder proposal. Yeah, and also as as you both noted in the past, maybe looking at individual votes against board members is the most important thing uh, for investors because in order to get a company to pay attention to climate risks. You may first need to get directors in place that actually understand climate risks. So an investor can vote against a single board member and say, hey, we need to get someone in here that understands the process. But in general, can't shareholder votes be used to show general displeasure with a company's director or a board's decision-making process? And, and even more. I mean, there, there are shareholder proposals that have very positive impact when they, when they win. Bear in mind that most, of course, are advisory in nature only. They're not binding. Um, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be dismissive of shareholder proposals. It's an important part of the toolkit. And when used correctly, um, they can be highly effective. It's just that it's it's not the full picture. Okay, so for our second story on Monday, the British travel agency Thomas Cook collapsed into liquidation, stranding nearly 150,000 people abroad, according to The Guardian. In a witness statement to the High Court in Britain, the CEO laid bare the perilous state of Thomas Cook's finances, which included a £3.1 billion balance sheet black hole that included... £388 million owed to hotel partners and £272 million to other external suppliers. So for a quick stat card on Thomas Cook, I talked to Agnes Grunfeld that runs our accounting governance risk models at MSCI ESG Research. And she noted that the financial distress rating for Thomas Cook that's in our AGR model has been alarmingly low for the most of the last three years meaning the models definitely saw this coming. And she also noted that Thomas Cook's direct competitor, TUI, a German multinational travel and tourism company, is also ranking pretty low on her AGR model. So if I take those two examples, it seems there are some heavy risks present within the old school travel agency models, which kind of seems obvious. A good anecdote of Thomas Cook's misguided operations was its acquisition of Co-op Travel that landed the company with 1,200 brick-and-mortar travel stores, an odd asset in the age of the internet, and yet 
As these misguided pursuits were happening, the past chief executives of Thomas Cook were pocketing millions of pounds in compensation. Now, Rick, this seems tough to square. When you hear these types of stats, as a governance guru, what goes through your head? Really always the same question. It's what it comes down to. Where was the board? You know, we we look to management to be be, um, strategic thinkers and to to uh, operationalize those strategies, uh, to come up with new ideas, to steer the company in, in positive directions. Uh, sometimes they take chances, sometimes they fail, sometimes they have to be replaced. But we look to the board in all of those cases to uh, protect shareholder value, to protect the assets of the company. And in this case, they clearly did not. We're, we're seeing a lot of companies face the stress of change uh, we're seeing a lot of companies have to try and adapt. CEOs are are constantly uh, second-guessing themselves and thinking about, you know, am I taking the company in the right direction? But but at the end of the day, it's it's up to the board to be the the protectors of of shareholder value. I think that goes right back also to what you were saying a few minutes ago about some investors going in and looking at individual directors when they're thinking about engagement and voting and so on and looking at whether they've got the right mix of people running the company, because that seems like an obvious question in the Thomas Cook case. But it it really does raise questions about old business models that are in trouble as the world changes around them. And we've had some interesting conversations here about other companies. Sears comes to mind, or Yahoo, which is now owned by Verizon, I believe. Or just recently, we talked about L Brands and Victoria's Secret and the the difficulties of trying to take that business forward in an era where consumer sensitivities are really changing. Right. There's also this shift away from big box retailers such as like Sears and JCPenney because customers favor a more personal touch. I, I actually, my prediction is that soon it's going to be there's going to be the Amazon machine or you're going to be an independent retailer that can personally tailor to an experience for your customers. And for Thomas Cook, there was this writing on the wall that everyone saw both financially, but also managerially. And and the board should have done something to change the way it was operating. And before this call, Rick, you pointed out a good example of a company that was a big box retailer and was losing ground to the internet, but changed it all around. Best Buy. So could you take me through this transformation? Well, make no mistake about it. it this wasn't a, a, a sudden realization and a, and a shift and, and, oh, okay, now we're all better. Um, Best Buy went through a really, really painful um, situation where it almost failed completely. Um, founder of the company was ousted by the board at one point, um, made an effort to reacquire control of the company, failed in that effort. Um, and then the board began the very slow process of reinvention, um, and it started with itself. They have really moved the company in a different direction. They've they've fostered a a much better environment um, for employees as a workplace. They've made a number of changes in the company, and, and most of them weren't uh, weren't following the advice that they got during the most painful period. It wasn't, you know, they didn't just simply try to turn themselves into a better Amazon uh, and, and do the dot-com online thing. They've changed the, the culture of the business and the way it approaches its, it, its, uh, its customers as well as its employees in the beginning to move it in a new direction. Um, th- you know, that's what it takes. It takes uh, thoughtful individuals 
joining the board and looking at all the options available, determining what the best strengths and best op- best opportunities are for the company, and then gradually moving the company in that direction. Um, it seems to be working at Best Buy. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Megan, I want you to take us out because I need to bring this back to Climate Week because I'm going to be honest, I'm stressed due to the climate disaster that's happening, and I think everybody should remain stressed. But the world is going through such rapid change, and it's no longer simply changes of culture in the heart, but rather ecological disruptions that our climate models can hardly keep up with. So I was wondering if to tie this back into Climate Week, could you reflect on when you're conducting an ESG risk factor analysis, how important governance is to ensure, for example, environmental policies that a company commits to implement are actually implemented at the company? As a governance team can destroy a company, as we saw in Thomas Cook's instance, it can also be needed to create change, correct? Governance really is at the heart of it all. I mean, we look at all kinds of specific issues and how a company is managing specific issues and risks. But at the end of the day, it comes back to the board and the corporate culture and the influence or lack thereof of the owners, i.e. the investors. So that's got to be at the heart of any kind of analysis. The world is changing. Like you said, we're facing some really drastic threats and risks today and longer term. And if you're going to be able to adapt to those and be resilient over a longer term horizon, you've got to be prepared to adapt and execute on changes that need to be made. And the heart of that really is at the board level. And if it's not at the board level, then investors need to be looking at that and thinking about how to get there. All right, that's it for the week. Thanks so much for joining me. And thanks to Rick Marshall and Megan Eastman for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. As always, if you like what you heard, please rate and review us. It always helps. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.